Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Ben Gowland, who's the director and founder of Ockham Healthcare, which is a think tank and consultancy that does a lot of work with primary care networks across England. Some listeners may know Ben from his own podcast, The General Practice Podcast, which he's been presenting since 2016. Coming up in this conversation, we're looking at what the future holds for primary care networks as we enter the final year of the five-year contract that led to their introduction in 2019. Ben explains why he thinks it's so important that practices engage with their PCN and the opportunities he believes PCNs provide to practices. We also talk about what integrated care systems and the fuller report could mean for PCNs and why it's important for general practice to work together to have the biggest possible influence in their local area. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Ben Gowland. As I'm sure most people listening will know, Ben has his own successful podcast called The General Practice Podcast, where he talks to people in general practice that are making change happen. Ben was a chief executive for eight years in the NHS. He's also been director of an acute trust and run national improvement programmes. He set up and established Neen Commissioning, first as one of the leading practice-based commissioning organisations in the country, and then as one of the largest CCGs. In 2015, he set up Ockham Health, a think tank and a consultancy that helps support new ways of working in primary care, in particularly around working at scale and collaboration. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you worked as an NHS chief executive and a manager, as I said there, and you left to set up your own company, Ockham. Can you explain a bit about what you do now and how you work with general practices and primary care networks? Yeah, it's kind of changed a bit. First, I was working with individual practices and then and and started to work with groups of practices this was kind of before pcns a bit when the primary care home stuff was around and then just over time i just find the place where i've been able to add most value is helping primary care networks so help practices to work together either in primary care networks or in federations or in super practices or even then that kind of interface between those organizations in the system so how do groups of primary care networks now work together say with an integrated care system that kind of thing I mentioned there as well, you've also got a podcast. Why did you start that podcast and what are you aiming to do with it? Well, we started the General Practice Podcast back in 2016. So we're in our seventh year now. (laughs) So back in 2016, there weren't really lots of General Practice Podcasts around. I've loved podcasts and um, just felt there's an opportunity for general practice to learn from itself. You know, like there's lots of good stuff, you know, all these practices, all all these different initiatives, but it's hard sometimes to access them. So it's really just a way of enabling general practice to kind of share ideas and learning with each other. You do a lot of work with PCNs and PCN clinical directors. In general, what's your view about how PCNs are getting on now? Do you think they're starting to make a difference? I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? To think about what is success for a primary care network, right? And so, and who determines what success is? And, you know, my view is when primary care networks were first introduced, which was when the 2019 GP contract was introduced four years ago, PCNs were, were brought in and they were like the mechanism for investment into general practice at that point, kind of superseding the five-year general practice forward view that existed since 2016. So for me, the question is, are primary care networks helping with GP practice sustainability and are they making a difference into that and I think they are starting to do that obviously the majority of the funding that's gone into general practice since 2019 has gone in via primary care networks so in order for practices to be sustainable they have to find a way of sort of getting some benefit out of primary care networks I think that's kind of what we're starting to see now so 
I do think it's important, though, that how we think about the success of primary care networks isn't always a system perspective, but we should keep it as a general practice perspective. From what I can gather and from people I talk to, there's almost like two views of primary care networks, aren't there? There's the people who are really enthusiastic about them and then the other people who think that they're just sort of adding a lot of work to general practice. But it seems to me that the easiest way to get everyone on board is if primary care networks could help make a difference to workload in general practice. Do you genuinely think they are starting to make a difference with that? Well, you know, way back back in 2016, when we, when we first set up Ockham, we looked at the sustainability of general practice and what things could potentially make a difference to general practice. And the things you know, that, that general practice could do, one was new roles. Two was joint working between practices and the economies that can be generated through that. And three was joint working with other partner organizations and the economies that can be generated through that. So the thing about primary care networks is they create the opportunity for all of those things. So what they can do is they enable general practice to make itself sustainable if it chooses to. Now, the challenge is there are lots of practices don't want to change, right? They don't want to do things any different and that just want more money and more investment. That money and investment isn't coming on its own. So you get resistance from practices and sometimes, you know, problems within individual primary care networks because you get some practices that want to take advantage of the opportunities that are there and some that don't. They just want to protect their independence and the way that they do things now. And so you get this frustration across the two and it does cause problems. Do you find there's a lot of uh, primary care networks that have those tensions within them. So there's going to be quite a few where you get that issue. And also the ones that get people like me involved tend to be, not always, but right, tend to be the ones where there are some of those problems going on beneath the surface, right? So maybe my experience of PCNs is skewed, but certainly you do see tensions. Also, it sort of depends how they were set up. So some were set up where you got like-minded practices, this idea of like-minded practices. And, and so they sometimes have found it easier because they started off where they kind of got together on the basis that they thought the same way in the first place. Whereas others, the group of practices that didn't have a natural alliance or they're maybe managed into a cooperative or a group by the CCG at the time, and they potentially find it hard. I mean, there was always practices that didn't want to collaborate you know, before PCNs and they're now in PCN. So it's inevitable that you're going to get those difficulties. What do you think some of the key challenges that PCNs are facing at the minute are? You know, a consistent challenge for PCNs has been practice engagement like linked to what we were just saying, right? So I would say that was the number one challenge back in 2019. And to an extent, it's still a challenge now. And probably that manifests itself slightly differently now because you have challenges like IIF. So, you know, if practices aren't pulling their weight on the IIF, that makes more of a difference than if they're just passive in, in a discussion. So you kind of, how do you deal with that? And then at the same time, you've got those practices that were passive. And then what's happening is they understand that all this resource is coming in through the PCN and they go, well, you know, we want our own physiotherapist or we want our own paramedic well that's not the way the PCN works and that's starting to create tension within the PCN you've always got that internal stuff going on with with general practice you know as an aside I think when the system introduced primary care networks they were quite 
interested in having that as a group of practices that could then partner with other parts of the system. You know, they were like this expectation, initial PCN agreement that there'd be a place for the community trust and a place for the local voluntary sector, a place for local acute trust and expectation that these would all come on within 18 months because they totally underestimated how difficult it is just for practices in an area to work together as a PCN, let alone bring on other organisations into that. So I think you've got that. You know, we're entering the last year of the uh, PCN contract and I think that in itself has created a level of uncertainty and so a big challenge for PCN CDs right now is kind of how do I deal with that uncertainty how do I deal with the fact that we don't know what's coming next and so it's hard to get people to commit to things you know going forward so I don't think that helps and also this explosion of ARS staff creates a set of issues in itself space issues you know where they're going to go HR issues turnover of staff amount of time that was initially spent recruiting and now these people that they've paid a bit more and now they're leaving and it, you know so there's a whole set of hr stuff for staff who aren't actually practice staff but a pcn staff and what does that mean so lots of things i think going on for pcns right now you mentioned there that we're about to enter sort of the last year of this five-year deal so that there's no guarantees really are there that pcns will exist do you think pcns will last beyond 2024 do you think they're here to stay well i think if you think about what's happening with the nhs more widely as a kind of context right so the nhs has shifted from a commissioner provider model to this model of integrated care systems Mm. and the nhs understands that general practice needs to be part of that partnership of providers that's kind of at the heart of what an integrated care system is its first response to that was to set up primary care networks. It's kind of that is why NHS England introduced primary care networks into the 2019 contract. So I think we can say with a fairly high level of certainty that what the system is going to want is groups of practices that are at a PCN size to continue to work together going forward. Whether that's still called exactly a PCN and it looks exactly as it is now, we don't know. But what isn't going to happen is a kind of abandonment of PCNs and a move back to 7,000 individual practices operating independently, making it even harder for the system to do business with them. So I don't really share that kind of worries that, oh, this could all go tomorrow. My concern really is that general practice could lose control of primary care networks and lose control of the resources in that and lose some of the gains that have been made in the last few years. So for me, that's a bigger danger than risk that I don't think exists, that something like PCNs won't exist going forward. What would that look like if they lost control? It's interesting when you look at the additional roles. Most PCNs now would have over a million pounds worth of additional roles. And so the rest of the system looks at PCNs and goes, wow, look at all this resource, look at all these staff. We would love to have been given all these extra staff to work in our organisation. When you look at the Fuller Report, so the Fuller Report is the biggest signal we have about what's going to come next from primary care networks. And so that talked about primary care networks evolving into integrated neighbourhood teams. And integrated neighbourhood teams really being that original model that we just talked about, about GP practices working with community trust and voluntary sector and the acute trust and everybody in their PCN locality. How does that work in practice, right? So does that mean the system, so someone maybe above general practice, suddenly controls this integrated neighbourhood team? And does that mean they take control of the ARS staff? That's a potential risk, I would say. 
I mean, interestingly, as you see, you know, there are some places that are trying to move ahead with integrated enabled teams. And it, it looks, I know it varies place to place, but the places that I've seen, it looks more like the primary care network represents the GP practices working together and how they operate in the integrated enabled team rather than the primary care network itself becoming the integrated neighborhood team. So, you know, should general practice remove itself from the PCN contract now, you know, at year four going into year five, well, that seems ridiculous to me because the risk that it then runs, because that resource isn't going to get shifted into core contract. That resource that sits in PCNs will just get given to the community trust. And general practice has lost control of all the resource that sits effectively accrued over the last four years. So I think general practice needs to be careful how it kind of moves forward through this sort of last year of this contract and into the period of the next contract. It seems to me that clinical directors in particular have a really, really difficult job. We've talked a lot about some of the challenges there that PCNs face, not least keeping their member practices all on board. Do you think there's enough support out there for PCNs and in particular for like clinical directors doing this job of running the actual networks? Well, it's interesting when I look at PCNs, obviously I'm in the very fortunate position of getting to work with lots of different PCNs. Um, in many PCNs, what they have done is sort of recognize that it is an impossible job for a clinical director to do on their own. And so what they've done, lots of places, is kind of built the infrastructure of the PCN to kind of reflect, one, the number of staff that they now have through the ARS teams, but also the level of delivery responsibility that they have. You know, the IIF's big, you've got all the specifications that need delivering, you've got the the enhanced access service delivery, and now you know, you've potentially got urgent access um, coming up as well. So there's a huge kind of delivery requirement as well. Now, you can't do that with you know PCN just doing two sessions. But if you have like a clinical lead for the pharmacists, a clinical lead for physician associates, a clinical lead for enhanced access, and you know lots of places are using the digital and transformation lead funding to ensure that they have proper senior management support into the PCN as well, then I think a well-developed infrastructure with the CD leading and enabling from the top rather than doing the doing that maybe they had to do four years ago, you know, when this was all starting out, then I think it is doable. But I don't think you can take that initial model of a CD doing two sessions and that's it. There's no way that could, could support what's now required of PCNs. Is there enough funding then in the network contract enhanced services? Is there enough funding coming through to pay for all of that? Well, there is funding in the PCN contract. And obviously, that's expanded as, as time has gone on, whether it's from IIF delivery or enhanced access delivery. The choice really is, what's the PCN going to do with that funding? Is it going to invest in its infrastructure and its ability to grow so it can make more difference? Or is it going to stick to this kind of every single bit of funding has to go direct to practices. And so this is core, really, for me around the impact that PCNs can make on practice sustainability. That if you just treat the PCN as the home for the resources that come in, and then it's our job to sort of apportion those resources out to the practices, if that's all really we're trying to do, then it's kind of missing the opportunity that I think PCNs represent, really, where PCNs then say, well, we will do this stuff together, we will build an infrastructure that allows us to deliver a lot of the things ourselves rather than have to go to a third-party contractor to manage the staff ourselves so we can create a legacy of staff that know our practices, that know our patients, that can make a real difference. That's when 
we'll start to see the PCN making more of a difference into its member practices than if we just see it as a problem thing that we have to have when really all we're interested in are these individual units of GP practices. Are you starting to see more and more PCNs then becoming official companies rather than this sort of loose collaboration they have been up till now then? Well, it's a question that's definitely live because as the ARS funds have grown, then the the liability that sits with the employment has grown. So it's a lot more uncomfortable now for a league practice this year sitting on a liability potentially above what its individual practice income is versus, you know, three years ago when it was a, a link worker and a pharmacist. So there's this issue of liability. On the other side, you've got the uncertainty of the fact that we're in year four of a five-year contract and we don't know what's happening next year. So do you really, as a PCN, want to invest a, a load of money in lawyers, setting up a limited company and all the stuff that's associated with that, only to potentially have to adapt that quite quickly in maybe as short a period as 12 months' time. So what I'm seeing is PCNs trying not to if they can find a better way. So if you can find a third-party GP organization in particular, a federation or something like that, who's prepared to kind of help out with some of that liability issue, then that's a much better solution for now than going down the, the limited company route if you can. You've also been doing a lot of work with PCNs working together. So not just practices working together to be PCNs, but PCNs working together. How are PCNs wanting to collaborate and what are the things you're talking to them about? Well, we're in a difficult time, I think, for general practice. When you think about the shift from clinical commissioning groups into integrated care systems, because clinical commissioning groups, you know, we didn't really like them, did we? Right? I mean, I was the chief executive one. I, I don't think, from a general practice <laughs> perspective, they were they were great because they were too sort of NHSE, too sort of system controlled, too controlled by NHS England, not sort of membership based enough for it to feel like it was general practice. So I get I get the sort of antibodies that are there, but what they did mean was that you had. GPs and people from general practice at the heart of NHS decision-making in a local area. And problem with the shift to the new system is that it that is basically removed. And so integrated care systems don't have the same level of general practice presence. And not only do they not have it, they start off by having it a bit because you've got this sort of legacy from the CCGs and they don't want to make redundancy, so you sort of keep the people who are there. And then we're seeing this kind of attrition over time. And so it'll get like steadily worse than it is now. And so if the idea of an integrated care system is a partnership between providers, what you don't want in your local area is that partnership being totally dominated by the local acute trust or the local community and mental health trust. You need to ensure that general practice has a, a voice into that system. Now, the design of integrated care systems is really not set up for general practice. It's like there needs to be a GP, not necessarily representative, just a GP giving a view into the integrated care board and that's it. So the sort of, in the areas that I've been working in, we've been thinking about, well, okay, so say there are four or five PCNs and a federation and an LMC. How would those organizations potentially be able to work together so that they're not able to be played off against each other. So that if the system wants to find something out about general practice, it doesn't just keep asking all the PCNs in the Federation, the LMC, till it gets the answer that it wants, but that there is a kind of single place that people would come to if they wanted to interact with general practice. 
it's quite hard, right? I mean, it's hard for practices to work together in a PCN, and it's equally hard for PCNs to work together in an area because you just general practice isn't set up to operate in a kind of corporate way, the way a, an organization like an acute trust or a community trust is. So the work really has been about, you know, how do we find a way of making that sort of joint work ineffective? How do you have, could you have a limited number of priorities that you think this is what, so rather than just reacting to what the system wants the whole time, can you actually get on the front foot and say, well, for general practice, this is what's really important to us as a provider? Because you know fine well, the acute trust is saying what it thinks is important. So how are we making sure we've got that equal voice? And so, uh, yeah, so kind of working that through with different areas, but how can we actually make that happen? The system doesn't like LMCs particularly because they see them as a trade union and rather than someone they can have a constructive dialogue with. But for general practice, they're really, really important. So how do you kind of harness the skills and expertise and knowledge you've got in the LMC alongside that with PCNs? And I do think, you know, I don't buy into this idea that PCNs are a, an NHS England construct. I think PCNs are membership organizations of that group of practices working as part of the GP contract, you know. So they equally are part of our core general practice, as long as they choose to think of themselves in that way. So I think that sort of partnership between PCNs and the LMC is is really important. And equally, PCNs working together in an area where that works badly, that can create all sorts of tensions. You know, PCNs think that one PCN is getting special access to initiatives or pilots or funding as it comes along just because they seem to know certain people. So if you can create that, if anything comes into one area, they share it with everyone, that sense of, you know, we are one general practice and we're in this together. And I think sometimes, you know, in general practice, you know, practices have seen other practices as getting preferential treatment or PCNs see other PCNs as getting preferential treatment. But the mindset, because of the change in environment that general practice is operating in, it's really important to have this idea of we are team general practice and really the only support general practice is going to get in the new system ultimately is from each other. And so how do we maximize that support we're able to give to each other so that we can have the biggest possible influence in the system and get the best possible deal for ourselves by acting as a collective rather than acting against each other, which is just a bad habit that I think, you know, general practice in lots of areas has sort of fallen into sometimes. With the sort of introduction of integrated care systems, I mean, they've only been around since last summer, so not very long. Are you starting to see any difference with or are PCNs that you're working with starting to feel any difference from the introduction of integrated care systems about what they're being asked to do? Essentially, the feedback that I get is, you know, the the people in integrated care systems, the staff are still in this huge state of transition that hasn't settled. And so the reality is they're not 100% clear what it is that they're supposed to be doing. What people get is this, there's just uncertainty about what they want. There's makes it harder for general practice because they're not sure who those they're supposed to be going to. People are moving around and changing all the time. Some of the knowledge around general practice is potentially being lost as well. A bit like with us with longer memories, you remember when CCGs were set up back in 2012, it's a similar thing kind of happened then. And so it's the uncertainty that's the challenge as opposed to ICS is going, right, now we know what we want and this is how it's all going to work. I was really struck when the fuller report came out, that was accompanied by a two-page letter that was signed by all 42 of the ICS chief executives. My summary of what that letter said was, we support the fuller report, in particular the bit that says, 
that resourcing around general practice should be localized so that we can tailor it to local needs, which again is code for we want it out the national contract and within the control of local ICSs. So I think whilst ICSs might not know exactly what they're doing, what they do know, particularly at the senior level, is that they want more control over general practice and they want they would like to see a move away from the national contract, which I'm not sure would be in the best interest of the service. One of the things we've written about recently, Integrated Care Board in Northwest London, and they're trying to basically commission all local enhanced services from PCNs now as opposed to general practice. So that what they're trying to do is effectively move funding away from individual practices and give it all to PCNs. So they're basically they're kind of devolving the kind of admin of it almost in some ways, and they're making PCNs do it. That was something that was mentioned right back at the start of the contract, that local enhanced services, it was kind of envisaged that they would eventually go through PCNs. Do you think that that's what we're going to start seeing, things like that, that maybe were local kind of contractual arrangements between what were CCGs and individual practices that they're going to try and start moving those sorts of things up to a PCN level? Definitely. So the the system doesn't want to do business with 7,000 plus individual GP practices. It, It wants to do business with a smaller number so that it can create effective partnership with that number. So the challenge for general practice is to think about, okay, if we know that that's coming, how can we make sure that we are ready for that and we're organized in a way that means we can use that to our benefit? There's an interesting corollary of that. We On our podcast this week, I was talking to um, the Swan practice in Buckinghamshire. And what's interesting about that uh, as a practice is that it's a single practice PCN. And I know there are a few around the country. But suddenly, if you think about it, if you're a single practice and the PCN, some commissioners stopped that happening at the start. But then, in a way, you sort of kind of solve the problem because there is no distinction between PCN and practice business. You know, the, the ARS staff are your staff. The IIF is just a, a version of Quaff, and the commissioner isn't playing you off against some top sliced sort of admin entity. It is the practice. So, it will be interesting to see whether we start to see a move of practices and practice sizes to kind of mirror PCN footprints or whether um, that'll be something that we won't see. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see more of a movement in that direction. You've touched on it quite a lot, obviously, the additional roles reimbursement scheme, the ARRS, obviously massive amounts of money now going into that. Do you think it's been a success or not? Because people I speak to, you know, they do think that these roles are great often, but it's a lot of work to train people up. You know, there's not suddenly this ready-made bunch of paramedics have all worked in primary care. Do you think overall that scheme has been a good idea and, and will be successful in helping general practice? It was interesting for me. I was at a you know, workshop with a, with a PCN last week and one of the GPs stood up and said, I was very sceptical about ARS staff and the difference they could make but I'll I'll hold my hand up and say I I was wrong they make a huge difference and I couldn't live without the pharmacists and the paramedic and the physiotherapists that we now have working in our practice because we are still losing GPs we haven't got the staff that we need and we are now relying on the work that they do as part of our practice workload given the fact that there aren't any more GPs workforce crisis at a GP level continues without any solution in sight, then the only option for practices is to make sure that they are using these additional roles in a way that enables them to be able to fulfill their kind of core business. And so, yes, it's been difficult 
the introduction. And, and some roles have been able to hit the ground more quickly than others, but some are taking much longer to come through. You know, position associates in particular, one where you know people really struggle at the outset, but you do find two and three years in, practices really love their physician associates and their physician associate team and the impact it can make on GP workload. So we had to go down that route. And yes, it's been painful and continues to be painful. And I understand that. But I think ultimately it will be life-saving because there isn't no alternative to using those roles because the GPs just don't exist. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Ben for taking the time to speak with me. We've put a link to his podcast and his blog in the description for this episode. I'm back next week when Nick and I will be looking at what the GP contract changes in England that were announced this week mean for GPs and their practices. You can read more about that as well as all of the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 